So let's, let's look at Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. For I, this is Jesus speaking. How do I know? Go back to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel. So verse 18, for I, that's Jesus, testify unto who? Every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. So anyone that hears the words of Revelation... And by default, this book, the Bible, Jesus has a warning. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. The book of Revelation and by default the entire Bible. The Holy Spirit who wrote the entire Bible put this warning at the end of the Bible. Not just because it's only for Revelation, but because it's for the whole of Scripture. If you believe that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, then by default, you must take this as a warning not to mess with the entire book or any part of it. Verse 19, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written therein. Those are dire words. That's a dire warning that I fear very few Christians take seriously. That I fear the American church for a long time is not taken seriously. Just like a man who plays with a gun or a child and doesn't take the warning of it seriously. Just like a person that plays with a sharp knife and doesn't take the warning seriously. Those who mess with God's Word and don't take the warning seriously are asking for trouble. And they're not asking for a little superficial cut or a bullet wound or even a burned hand from a hot stove. What they're asking for is much worse than that. This is a serious warning. What is a warning? I, when I look at English words, I don't like to look at this modern, this modern garbage dictionaries which redefine words like marriage and redefine words like... Uh, female and male, away from what they have been in the English language for centuries. I like to go back to a good solid dictionary. It kind of is contemporaneous with the early days of our country when men in government actually fear God. They claimed to fear God, and then they did godly and righteous things in places of power. Not like today where they claim to fear God to get votes, and then when they're elected, they act in ways that are contrary to fearing God. It's a very different time. But I like to default to Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary. It's a good standard. You can actually download apps of this dictionary on your phone, so you don't have to possess it. I have a real old copy of it that's a treasure in my library. But Webster, 1828, the standard, what I consider to be the standard by which all other dictionaries in the English language can be judged, defines the, uh, the word warning this way. It's a cautioning against danger. It's an admonishing, a giving of notice, a summoning. Here in the Scriptures, on its closing page, we have a summoning. We have a caution. Jesus Christ is giving us notice. We have an admonishing. 
And you, you probably, ne- a lot of us don't like to hear warnings. We don't like warnings because we, in our inherent prideful nature, we don't like to be told what to do. So we don't like warnings. And sometimes we respond to warnings by minimizing them or changing them up like Eve did in the garden. God gave Eve and Adam a warning. She couldn't even get straight when she repeated it to Satan later. But a warning contrary to woke American culture is actually a great act of mercy. It's not an act of judgment. Warning someone's not judging them. It's actually showing mercy to them. And warning is what sets the God of the Bible apart from the false gods of men. Warning is what sets Almighty God, the God of the Bible, apart from the false gods of men. Turn real quick to the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. As you think about warning, we used the word exhortation a few weeks ago. Warning is a negative. An exhortation is a positive. So if you warn somebody, you're cautioning them against. If you exhort someone, you're encouraging them too. And God does both of those things. God does both of those things. It's kind of like the relationship between grace and mercy. Mercy is is God not giving you what you deserve. That mirrors the act of warning. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense... Is God offering you something free that you don't deserve? That's mirrored in exhortation. So the relationship between an exhortation and a warning is much like the relationship between grace and mercy. Mercy, God not giving us hell because of Jesus Christ when we deserve it. Grace, God giving us eternal life, the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, joy and peace and the things of this life that we don't deserve that are good. Amos chapter 3 defines God in a way that sets Him apart. I'm going to begin at verse 3. There's a few questions asked here. I would call them rhetorical questions where the answers are obvious. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when it hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? These are rhetorical questions that all have the same answer. No. None of these things would happen naturally unless... It was a direct divine judgment from God. None of these things happen on their own. Two can't truly walk together unless they're agreed. Unless they walk together in disagreement because God is judging them with madness. A lion won't roar without prey, but he will if he's an instrument of God's judgment. 
And then we get down to verse 7. All of these things that won't happen on their own, but would if they were instruments of God's judgment. Verse 7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secrets unto His servants, the prophets. God never dispenses judgment without warning. So in other words, God won't do anything judgment-wise unless He first speaks or warns through His servants, the prophets. And that's what happens here in God's Word. That's what happened with Israel time and time again. That's what happened with old Pharaoh time and time again. God doesn't dispense judgment without warning. That is an act of mercy that can't be said of the false gods of men. In the Hindu fantasies and the mythologies, you can, you know, even if you study Greek and Roman mythology in high school, what you saw is that these gods and goddesses enacted or exacted judgment upon men for their own lust and pleasures, for no reason at all, but to get back at another god or just to be mean, or just to satisfy their own lust and pleasures. They would, in these Disneyland fairy, fairy tales, exact judgment for, for their own pleasure and not give men warning at all. That's not God of the Bible. That's not Him. He's a loving, merciful God, and He warns us about the dangers to come. It's a merciful thing that Jesus warns us about messing with His Word. God sent Jonah to Nineveh with a warning. God was going to destroy that city in 40 days. Now God could have just wiped it off the map. But He sent the prophet to warn them in 40 days this this city will be overthrown. What happened? People of Nineveh repented from the king down to putting the sackcloth on the animals. And God didn't change His mind about the evils of Nineveh. He changed His way. And gave the people reprieve. And it wasn't that generation that saw the overthrow of Nineveh. It was their children's children 150 years later. God didn't change his mind about that. But he changed his way because he's a merciful God. And men heeded his warning. Think about the Old Testament. All of Israel's history is fraught with warning from God. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11... That that is the purpose of the Old Testament. That's the purpose of Israel's history. To admonish us. These things happened unto them for in samples. And they admonish us. They're a warning to us upon whom the ends of the world are come. That's one of the main purposes of Israel's history in the Old Testament is to warn us. Over in Romans 15, verse 4, Paul tells us the other side of that. The purpose of the Old Testament is to comfort us. In our affliction. To warn and to comfort. The Old Testament's presence in our Bible alone is a warning from God that we don't listen to. It's a warning for America. And you go to Exodus 19. Israel's at the Mount Sinai. God sends Moses to warn them, do not approach this mountain. If even an animal approaches this mountain, it'll be destroyed. Moses comes up to the mountain to hear from God. God says, Moses, I want you to go back down there and warn the people not to approach this mountain. Moses said, God already warned them. They know not to approach this mountain. God says, shut up and get down there and warn them. And so Moses goes back and warns them again. Do not approach this mountain. 
So sometimes God is so merciful that He'll give you a double warning. Now, a lot of us as parents aren't that merciful. We'll warn our children, and when they transgress or do exactly what they tell us not to do, they act. When I was a child, my grandmother warned me, do not throw that rag on the roof. Don't do it. She was, and my grandfather was babysitting us while my mom and dad were out of town. She warned me, do not throw that rag on the roof. And I sat there, and I looked at her, and I threw it on the roof. Now, she didn't give me a second warning. And after that, she broke a switch off the tree and walloped my rear end. And I'm going to tell you right now, I got walloped with that switch harder than that old boy that attacked us on the side of the highway than he got. I'm telling you, it was worse. And it was righteous. But she didn't give me two warnings. She didn't owe me two warnings, but God's merciful, and sometimes He'll give you two warnings, like He gave Israel. God's Word is full of warning. Therefore, Paul's preaching, Paul's preaching involved, quote, warning every man, unquote. Colossians 1.28. If the Bible's full of warning, how can our preaching not involve warning? How, come, how can our witnessing not involve warning? In the face of an attacker who is threatening your life and you love Jesus, how can your words not involve warning? Warning about God's judgment. Warning about the state of America. Warning not to come between a man and his children. If you love somebody and love Jesus, you're going to love enough to warn them. Whether they're an attacker spitting in your face or whether there's somebody claiming to be a Christian, a friend or a family member, that are bringing reproach on the name of Christ through their conduct. To warn is to love. Paul said his preaching included warning every man. Ezekiel, the prophet's commission directly from God, was to warn Israel. I have chosen you and I want you to warn them from me. Ezekiel 3.17 Give them warning from me. And then he sent the prophet out and said that he was to be a watchman to warn the wicked. And then God warned the prophet. I want you to warn the wicked, but I'm warning you. If you fail to warn the wicked and they don't turn from their evil ways, then my judgment's going to come upon them, but their blood I'll require at your hand because you didn't warn them. So not... So warning is not only an act of mercy, it's an act of righteousness. And it's a command from God. From the day that we began walking across America from Cape Hatteras, we have said and communicated many, many times that God had called us to walk across this nation in the spirit of watchmen upon a wall. Now, if we didn't warn people about the coming judgment of America, then we would be liars. We would be liars as to our purpose. For a faithful watchman warns of the approach of danger. A watchman who doesn't warn is derelict of duty. In fact, he'd be more derelict of duty than those derelict cops who arrested us on the side of that highway. Complete total dereliction of duty. But you're more derelict of duty... As a watchman, if you don't warn folks, 
because warning them is an act of mercy. It's not an act of love. I mean, it's not an act of uh, judgment. It's an act of mercy and love. True love bids a warning doom. False love, sentimental love, woke love, wouldn't dare warn someone. But true love bids a warning doom. What did Jesus tell us to do in his Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies. What does that mean? Folks that camp out in the Sermon on the Mount and don't expand their horizons into other parts of the Bible that God considers important enough, He warns us not to mess with them. Don't get out of the Sermon on the Mount and see how Paul himself defines what that means. What does it mean to love your enemies? Romans 12, 9 is a biblical definition of love. And it defines what Jesus means. How do we love our enemies? Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be without dissimulation. Dissimulation is a good old English word. You should look it up in a Webster's 1828. Let love be without dissimulation. That means without concealing or keeping to yourself what you know is true. And then it tells us two things. Love without dissimulation does two things. Let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor, that's a stronger word than hate. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So to love our enemies is to love them enough to tell them what we truly believe. And it's to love them enough to abhor evil and cleave to that which is good. To warn them against evil and to exhort them unto what is good. That's biblical love. And biblical love bids a warning doom. The same Jesus that said love your enemies tells us or warns us at the end of this Bible, don't mess with God's Word. He's warning both his enemies and his friends. Don't mess with this book. It's an act of love. We don't like to talk about warning nowadays. The absence of warning in our schools, the absence of warning against sin in the news media, and even in our churches, probably in our churches, has caused worse damage anywhere else. In fact, that's probably the reason why it's not in any of these other institutions because we've stopped warning each other in God's house. That is why we are where we are today. The absence of warning. That's why wickedness thrives and righteousness is persecuted. That's why our government, both at the state, national, and local levels, doesn't restrain evil and promote good. It promotes evil and restrains good. Even at the local level. All you got, two words, Madison County. That government out there doesn't promote good and restrain evil. Our situation is proof of that. 100% proof. Now, if they really did want to promote good and restrain evil, then the evil would be the one facing charges. And the good who acted honorably and according to duty would be rewarded. And maybe they'll change their tune. Maybe they will. Just like old Hickory did up here years ago when they tried to Restrain good, the giving out of the gospel on public property while promoting evil, drinking, haranguing, harassing, threatening. They got, they, got their, they got back on track. So there's hope for those folks out there. We should pray for that. For the sake of the people that live there. There's good people that live there love God. But for us to fully appreciate, and I'm not going to be able to go too long. Now. I won't get through all this. 
But for us to fully appreciate this last warning in Scripture, we need to go back to the Scripture's first warning. Remember, we have the Bible's last invitation immediately followed by its last warning. You see the same thing in the beginning of the Bible. The Bible's first invitation is immediately followed by its first warning. Isn't it interesting how symmetric God's Word is from beginning to end? It's unity, the way it fits together. That's supernatural. Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Last week we talked about the Bible's first invitation. Man was given an invitation to eat of any of the trees of the garden. Even a tree of life. I've given it to you for food, God said to our first father and our first mother. Of it you may freely eat. But then that invitation in the very next verse is followed by a warning, a dire warning. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. A warning. A warning to everyone that was there to hear God at the time. For everyone. It was for everyone because at that time there were only two people. Adam and Eve. And it was a warning to everyone that heard him. <coughs> Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of it. Didn't say you couldn't climb it. Didn't say you couldn't look at it. Didn't say you couldn't rest up against its trunk. Didn't say you couldn't perhaps take a leaf or examine it or sleep beside it. Didn't say any of that. It said don't eat of it. And if you do... God said, you will die. That's a dire warning. That's a dire warning concerning the knowledge of good and evil. And it was given to everyone that heard Adam and Eve. And it's not just for Adam and Eve. It's for us as well. It should be a warning for us. I think about what Paul says in Romans 16 verse 19. He tells us that we need to be wise unto that which is good, but simple unto that which is evil. So that same warning applies to us. Having a deep understanding of evil is dangerous. We need to be wise to that which is good. Spend our time learning and studying and embracing and meditating upon what is good. And just be simple. Simple concerning evil. Enough to, know, enough to know how to spot it. It's a dangerous thing when missionaries and preachers and teachers think that to combat false teaching, they have to dive into that false teaching and learn all of this stuff about it and why they believe this and what's, what their false scriptures say here and what Joseph Smith said here and what this guy said. That's dangerous. It's as dangerous for us as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. We can't handle a thorough knowledge of evil. If we knew, I mean, we see these stupid uh, circuses. That stuff in the U.S. House of Representatives last week was a circus. I mean, you had an old redneck in there. I don't know. I, I saw him. There was an old redneck. I think he's from Alabama, some House member. I think he'd been drinking too. Got all upset and just went raging and went and lunged at some guy in there. I mean, that's not the worst. Back, during, back before the Civil War, there was an old congressman that took a cane and walked into Senate and beat someone senseless with it. 
The one he did that to probably deserved it if you go back and look at the history. Of course, he was rewarded for it. He got a lot of packages in the mail after that. People from all over the place sent him canes to replace it. His name was Preston Brooks. But that, you know, that we, we want to think that what we see today is like the worst that's ever happened. And that's just the perspective of spoiled, rotten brats that we are here in America. But that was a circus. And it was funny to watch because I saw an old redneck down there get angry and lunge at somebody. And it looked exactly like the old MAGA QAnon redneck that run, lunged at us. I mean, it was like a, almost an exact example. What you had happen on the streets there in Montana is happening in our own Congress because we're so far from God. But it was a circus. It was a circus in that House of Representatives. And why is that? It's because we've not heeded the warnings of God. And I was going somewhere with that thought and I've completely gotten lost. I was going somewhere with the House of Representatives. But it was a circus. Those, those folks don't fear God. They don't fear God. They love talking about the deep, dark depths of evil, but won't even mention what is good. You know, I, I think that those Buffalo Bills football players, kind of piggybacking on what was said Wednesday night, they're in a better position to run this country than those buffoons in Congress. Because when something terrible happened, what did they do? All of a sudden, it was okay to pray on the football field. And they got down on their knees and they asked God for help. Now, I'd trust those boys to run this country more than I would those, that, the buffoonery that's in there now. During all that madness last week, there wasn't a single one of those folks on either side of the aisle that said, hey, let's stop and ask God for help. Something that the Continental Congress did regularly, daily, something that the Constitutional Congress did multiple times, and something that they used to do in this country. And we wonder while it's madness. When you think that there's a better way to fix a problem in a country that was founded by God, then you're doing exactly what Jesus warned you not to do. You're adding to God's Word. It's dangerous. And then you wonder why we have all these plagues and problems like we do today. With the first warning in the Bible, God did exactly what He said He would do. Adam and Eve ate, they disobeyed, and they died, both spiritually that day and physically. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Just as the Bible's first warning is a dire warning concerning good and evil, so is the Bible's last warning. The Bible's last warning is also a dire warning warning concerning good and evil. Genesis warns about the knowledge of good and evil. Revelation is warning us about the source of the knowledge of good and evil. Or the source of truth about good and evil. What is that source? It's the written Word of God embodied in the living Word of God. God warned Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he warns us, don't mess with the source of the truth of good and evil. This book tells us what is good and what is evil. Often in complete contradiction to what we've been led to believe is good and evil. But it's the source. 
This is a dire warning in 22, 18, and 19 concerning the source of truth. The truth of what is good according to God and what is evil according to God. And just like the Bible's first warning, it is to every man that hears it. When God told Adam and Eve not to eat, every man alive on earth that day heard it because there was only two. This warning is for everyone that hears it. Not just a few people. Not just for the wicked and the godless and the folks that don't care about the Bible. But also for those that love God and care about the Word of God. It's a warning for all of us. To everyone that hears. And if it is unheeded, God will do, just like He did in the garden, exactly what He says He's going to do. If this warning goes unheeded, God will add plagues and God will take away an inheritance because God does what He said He's going to do. Just like He did in the Garden of Eden. And He's demonstrated time and time again. It says, I testify, Jesus is speaking for I, I, Jesus. We see that in verse 16, it's here. I goes back to the Jesus in verse 16. The antecedent of this pronoun. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Not only is the book of Revelation prophecy, and this is talking about Revelation itself, but so is the entire Bible. The Bible is prophecy. It's a foretelling of truth confirmed in history. We think of prophecy as foretelling, just telling the future. Oh, no. Prophecy is foretelling. It's a warning about truth. It's a warning. And that warning is coupled with detailed description of history written in advance. And then that history is recorded when it transpires. This phrase here, the words of the prophecy of this book reminds me of something that I wrote that appears in several of the gospel tracts that I've published over the years by God's grace and to His glory. Blunt truth, haven't you heard? Some of those little white booklets you've seen. And it speaks of the Bible as prophecy. I think it's, it's worth reading today in light of this phrase here. In 2218, fulfilled prophecy is the main proof that the Bible is the written word of God. And it's the main reason that you should take Jesus' warning here seriously. It really is. The Bible makes more than 800 prophecies, all of which are removed far enough in time from their fulfillment that can, there can be no chance of accidents or coincidence. Of these 800 prophecies, roughly 300 of them have already been fulfilled literally. And the 500 that remain are set or yet to be fulfilled in the future. The probability of these 300 already fulfilled prophecies coming to pass by coincidence is mathematically, statistically, and scientifically impossible. So, when the Bible speaks about itself, as being the holy words of the living God, it is speaking with mathematical and statistical certainty of a scientific fact. 
With regard to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word of God, the Messiah, the Bible predicts 48 details, minute details of his life, hundreds of years before his birth, and then shows them to be fulfilled literally. And then the Bible hazards its truthfulness. It's willing to risk its own truthfulness on 500 more prophecies which are yet to be fulfilled in the future and associated with our Lord's return. The Hindu Shastras and the Vedic writings, the writings of Buddha, they don't dare hazard such guesses. And when you take the Quran and compare it with the Bible in this respect, it's like looking at an anthill, not the big kind you find in Africa, but the little ones that pop up in the cracks on your driveway. It's like looking at one of those anthills beside of Mount Everest. The Bible is a book of prophecy. And fulfilled prophecy is precisely why we should take this warning seriously. Revelation, and by default, in terms of the placement of this warning... the entire Bible, is the source of absolute truth concerning good and evil, concerning God, concerning righteousness, concerning Jesus Christ, concerning truth and error. It is wholly sufficient in all matters of faith and practice. It is the final authority, the written word embodied in the living word. Now, I wanted to remind you, I've preached in detail before on the relationship between the living word and the written word. And I'd encourage you guys to go back and listen to that. You might find them, <coughs> find those messages um, helpful. I'll give you some dates here. You can find all of these on our ministry website, fpgm.org. But on April 30th, 2017, this would fall under the local church teachings podcast. I preached a message called The Living Word, The Written Word. That was preached at Living Word Baptist Church in 2017. You'll find that a (coughs) kind of a simple uh, discussion of this topic. But then if you go to the Revelation podcast, message 127 and 128. Now I can't believe we're talking about numbers that high. I think we're on 170 something today. (laughs) But message 127 and 128, this was taken from Revelation 19. These messages were preached. There's a part one and a two. The Word of God, part one. The Word of God, part two. February 3rd, 2019. February 10th, 2019. I would encourage you to listen to those. They discuss in detail the relationship between the living Word and the written Word. And in those messages, I emphasized... Three words that Jesus liked to use in his preaching. They're three of the most powerful words when coupled together in the English language. It is written. It is written. Jesus uses these three words at least 20 times in the Gospels. It is written. And when the living word uses those three words in his preaching then it makes this last warning in the Bible deadly serious. Not just serious, but deadly serious. The living word, I, Jesus, here, 
in the last chapter of the Bible, warns not to mess with the written word. Do not mess with God's word. Don't mess with its prophecies. Don't mess with the book of Revelation. Don't mess with the New Testament. Don't mess with the Old Testament. Don't mess with the words themselves or the names or the dates. Don't mess with it. And this warning is twofold. Don't add anything to it and don't subtract anything from it. Now that's interesting because that was the exact response in the Garden of Eden to God's first warning. So when Jesus says don't add to God's word and don't take away from it, in the last warning of the Bible, He's warning us not to make the same mistake that was made by both Eve and the serpent in the garden. We ought to learn from that example. Don't make that mistake again. When a serpent came subtly, Genesis 3, Yea, God hath said. The yea, God hath said society goes all the way back to the garden. It's still alive today. There's a lot of membership in it, a lot of seminaries, pastors, preachers. Oh, yeah, God said it. But what he really meant, or a better translation would read this. But, yeah, God said that. Well, Eve says, well, well God told us we could eat of every tree in the garden... Just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it, neither shall you touch it. Genesis 3.3. God never told her she couldn't touch it. She added to God's word. And then what did Satan say? Satan did the opposite. Verse 4. You won't die. Eve said, we're not to eat it or touch it or we'll die. Satan says, you won't die. That's not what God meant. It means you'll be like him. You'll know good from evil. So we had someone add to God's word in the garden. We had someone take away from it in the garden. And here at the end of the Bible, we're told don't do those things. Don't add to God's word, verse 18. Don't subtract from it, verse 19. I want to talk about adding to God's word, and I want to talk about subtracting from it. And we're not going to get into that today. Um. We need to be careful about adding to God's Word. That happens all the time. And we need to ask God to give us eyes to see in the spirit of discernment. There are Bibles that are used today, modern English Bibles, that add to God's Word. And many of us don't have eyes to see it. And then there's also a lot of taking away of God's Word. That happens with the modern Bibles probably far more than the adding to So I want to look at some examples of that. But you can add or take away. You don't have to be translating or printing or writing the scriptures to add or take away from it. When you take away from what it says in your preaching or you ignore part of what it says to uplift something else or when you rip a verse out of context, you are subtracting from God's word. And when you take anything else, anything, whether it's tradition, the word of a judge, the word of a pope, preference, 
love of family, when you take anything else and you put it on the table of final authority beside God's Word, you're adding to God's Word. You're adding to it. When you put anything else beside your Bible on the table of final authority, you add to God's Word. Some people do that with the U.S. Constitution or the Bill of Rights. My friends... The U.S. Constitution is a great document. The Bill of Rights is a great part of that document. But it's not divinely inspired like the Mormons teach. And when you lift the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, or the Pledge of Allegiance, and you put it beside the Bible in your American churchianity religion, you are adding to God's Word and you're in danger according to Jesus. The rights that are afforded us in the Bill of Rights, aren't afforded us because they're in a document. They're afforded us because they come from God. It's an inalienable right given from God to worship Him according to the dictates of our conscience. It's an inalienable right from God and a responsibility to men to watch over their families and children, to watch over each other, to look out for innocent people and to be ready to defend them against evil. That's a right from God. And sometimes when you are the only line of defense between a raging maniac and an innocent person, you're responsible to defend yourself because if you don't, you're not defending them. That comes from God. I don't need a constitution to give me permission for that. I don't need a judge or a state gun law to give me permission for that. Those things come from God. And when we elevate these works of men as if they have equal authority to God's Word, we are adding to God's Word. I praise God for the Constitution. I praise God for good laws that reward evil and restraint, I mean that reward good and restrain evil. A lot of laws they reward evil and restrain good. America's no longer a force for good. You need to remember that when you read Romans 13. America's no longer a force for good. It's a force of great evil in this country and our chief export is iniquity to the nations. So remember that. Don't forget that when you read Romans 13. But when we lift these things up as if they have the equal authority the equal power and the equal value of God's Word, then we are doing the very thing that Jesus warned us against. And we need to take heed. The last warning of the Bible is a dire warning. We need to let it be our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Not just the Word of God, but the words of God. I'm going to cut off the day so that we can... Uh, Observe the Lord's table. Next week, we're going to talk specifically about adding to God's Word. What does that look like? Who's guilty of that? Well, false teachers and false religions are guilty of that. Rabbinic Judaism is guilty of that. The Catholic Church is guilty of that. And we don't mind talking about all that, but be careful because American churchianity is very guilty of that. And then we're going to look at some examples in modern Bibles where God's Word is added to. And some of it's quite shocking. And many of us just don't know because we don't study our Bibles or pay attention to detail. <coughs> Jesus pays attention to detail. So let's consider this. Let's humbly approach this last warning in the Bible and let's ask God that we would know and understand His Word. 
that we would be wise to that which is good, simple concerning evil, and that we would never be guilty of adding to His Word, giving something else the same authority as His Word or value as His Word, or taking away from it. I've never heard this passage preached in my entire life. Never. Never once. In my entire life of going to church, I've never heard a preacher preach these two verses. Never. Man, I would think the last warning in the Bible would be worth looking at. Of course, I'd think the last book in the Bible would be worth looking at, especially in light of what is said to the churches in two whole chapters. But hey, these are troubling times. But let's close in prayer, and then we're going to turn it over to the elders for the Lord's table. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is a mighty spiritual weapon to the casting down of strongholds. It's a sword of the Spirit. It's our only offensive weapon, Lord, and it's powerful. It cuts to our hearts. It can cut to the heart of any man. Even the most wicked man can come to a place of humility and repentance by the power of your word. That's power. That's more power than an arsenal of nuclear weapons, Lord. And we thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray that we would take your word seriously. Lord, forgive us if we have added to it accidentally or haphazardly through neglect forgive us forgive us if we've taken from it lord and we ask that you'd give us a spirit of discernment lord to know good from evil to know your word to handle it to speak it to read it to meditate upon it and lord to follow the example of jesus and of the prophets and to live out god's love which is to warn the wicked to even warn the saints, Lord. It's a great act of love and mercy. And give us desire and resolve, Lord, to demonstrate such a love for each other and for others. Lord, we ask that you would bless now the, the, uh, the table of the Lord as we remember what the living Word done, did for us and what has been recorded for us in the written Word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.